on Hosea today. We've been going through the study of Hosea. Well, for the month of October, we're taking a break from Hosea to do a uh, five-week study in uh, what are called the solas of the Reformation. Uh, And you would logically ask, why are we looking at these now? And uh, On October 31st, 1517, uh, that'll be 500 years ago this coming October 31st, uh, Martin Luther um, nailed to the chapel door at Wittenberg his 95 theses. And uh, he was fighting against a theology in the church that was contrary to scripture. Specifically, he was addressing in these 95 theses uh, the selling of indulgences. And in essence, uh, this was the buying and selling of salvation. Uh, This buying of salvation or, or getting into heaven for either yourself or a loved one. And this is something even that even the Catholic Church would go on to reject, even though they were the ones doing it at the time. Uh, but the, at the time, the church was steeped in politics. They needed money. Uh, they were funding wars. They were also building chapels and churches off this money. Uh, there's a famous quote, whether he said it or not, credited to John Tetzel that said, When a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. Uh, the idea being, and And if you think about this, if you're living in a world that is largely religious and you want to make some money, it's not a bad way to make some money if you think about it, if you want to abuse people. You basically say, if you give me your money, you'll get into heaven. Or if you give me your money, someone you love that you're not sure is in heaven will then be allowed to go to heaven. And that's appealing, right? If you have a loved one that may have passed away and you're not sure if they are Christian or not, and they are not in heaven, you think, wait, I can buy their way into heaven? And the church, the major uh, religious entity of the day, is telling you this is what can happen? It's appealing, and they were making money off people. But it was false. It was not according to Scripture. And so there was this reformation that came uh, through Luther, and it spread uh, to much of the known world, heavily influenced uh, Calvin in France, John Calvin, Uh, John Calvin heavily influenced John Knox in Scotland, and Knox in Scotland was instrumental in in the formation of what we know as Presbyterianism today. Who we are as a church is founded in the Reformation. And so over the next few weeks, we're going to look at five major concerns of the Reformation. And really what the Reformation was, was nothing less than an, an effort to return to biblical theology. Uh, And we can sometimes get lost in this notion of, well, uh, the church sprang out of just 500 years ago. No, what they were trying to reclaim uh, something that was lost as the church had became heavily corrupted. And so for the next five weeks, we're going to look at five concerns. We're going to look at scripture alone, grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, and to the glory of God alone. These are often called the five solas. Solas is a Latin, and it just means alone. Uh, So we're going to look at these, and today we're going to begin by looking at uh, Scripture alone. So let's read our text this morning uh, from 2 Timothy 3, 15 and 16. Or I should say 16 and 17. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching and for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. The question we have to begin with today is this. Is there such a thing 
as a source of truth. Where can we find and where can we know truth? Because I don't know if you know this, but we live in an age of ethical chaos. And what do I mean by that? Ethical chaos. In essence, I mean this. We live in a time where there is no certainty of truth. And in fact, we live in what we call a time that is pervasive, is covered, is, is influenced by what we call relative truth. And you may get, oh, that's confusing. What are you talking about? All it means is simply this. What's true for you is true for you. And what's true for me is true for me. So you live your life living what's true for you, and I'll live my life living what's true for me, and let's just not try to offend each other as we do it. And if you think about it, you go, oh yeah, that's the world we live in, right? We cannot claim, and in fact, if, if we as Christians go into the world and say, no, that's wrong, the response we'll often get is, says who? Says you, why do you get to say it? Why does this book that's thousands of years old get to say it? No, I can claim what's true, and you can't tell me that something's wrong. So that's what I mean by ethical chaos. We live in a time of chaos, and much of this chaos has come in and actually been absorbed by the church. The church, which is supposed to be the pillar of truth has began, begun to look more and more like the society in which we live in, joining the world rather than fighting it. Uh, in his book, Living in Sin, A Bishop Rethinks Human Sexuality, the Episcopal Bishop John Shelby Spong said this, I stand ready to reject the Bible in favor of something more humane, or more human, more humane, more life-giving, and dare I say, more godlike. Think about that for a moment. I am ready to reject the Bible for something more godlike. Whatever else he believes, and whether he's right or wrong, his, his quote is simply a name. It doesn't make sense. It lacks reason. Because he's contradicting himself. He's saying, I reject the Bible in, to be, in order to be more like the one who gave me the Bible? It doesn't make sense. And the answer that we have to have to this is the doctrine, this reformed doctrine of sola scriptura. Scripture alone. God has not left us to our own devices. God has not said what's true for you is true for you and what's true for her is true for her and you can all just do whatever you want to do. No, he's not left us that way. He's spoken to us. He's spoken for us. Scripture alone is to determine what we believe and what we do. And far too often the church has become like a reed in the wind blowing this way and blowing that way, whatever the world turns so that we may be accepted by the world. We bow to entertainment. We bow to whatever claim seems to be held right and most precious to the world. But when we come to the word of God, 
we see that it says many things about itself. It makes many claims about itself. And we're going to see four things that scripture is. This thing that we are to stand on. Scripture is inspired. That's one. Scripture is infallible and inerrant. That's two, but it's also one point. Third, it's authoritative. And four, it's sufficient. It's inspired. It's infallible and inerrant. It's authoritative. And it's sufficient. We begin by saying that the Bible is inspired. It is the inspired word of God. And this this word is not hard for us to understand. It's inspired. It is, as Timothy says here, it is breathed out by God. All scripture is breathed out by God. And it's not describing the quality of the writing. It's not describing even necessarily who... Uh, ended, it's, but it's talking about their source. Scripture has been given a divine source. It comes from the very mouth of God. And in Scripture, we see God's wisdom for us, 2 Peter 1, 20 through 21. Knowing this, first all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone else's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God, and they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. God is the one who produces the word of God. All the Bible is inspired. All of the Bible, every last bit of it, is God's words. And we don't mean that this this implies that the Bible is dictated. There are certain examples where there was dictation in the, in the Bible, where men were called to actually write down these words. But mostly, God worked through unique circumstances. He worked through the personalities of the biblical writers in such a way that the writings reflect their individual traits and gifts. In the word of God, we see much the same as what we see in Jesus. In Jesus, you see the human and the divine come together without sin and without error. And while the Bible is not exactly the same as this, we see something very similar. The human and the divine come together, and the Bible is without error. Scripture is colored by its writers, but it's not corrupted. It passes through the human personalities. God creates the human authors. When they spoke and wrote, it is exactly what God wanted them to say or to write. And over and over again, we see that scripture says, the word of the Lord came to me, or the word of God, so on and so forth. This is the word of God. This is our confidence that the Bible is the very word of God, not merely a human book. It is God's message to humanity given by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. It is breathed out by God. Literally here, the word breathed, here is, is it's almost like a, a wind. And you go to the Old Testament, the Old Testament equivalent of this would be the Hebrew word ruah. And ruah means wind or spirit. And that's the sense that's going on here in this breathed out. It's the working of the Holy Spirit. And so Timothy tells us through the inspiration of the Spirit, all scripture is breathed out. And because it is breathed out, it is good for teaching. It's profitable for teaching 
for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. We must submit to the word of God because it is the inspired word of God. And so it is good for us to teach us, to correct us. Now, this means that we must submit to the word of God. And that's where the problem comes in, right? Because that means we have to submit. And we tend to have a problem with submission in general from a very young age. It's not something we naturally like to do, but we must come to terms with the reality that the word of God is his words for us. And because it's his words, because it is the inspired word of God, that makes it infallible and inerrant. And again, these are two words that we might just be confused by, but they're really not hard. The in there is just a negation, and the other, the second half of the word makes it much more easy. So we say it's infallible, it does not fail, and it's inerrant, it does not err. So it will not err in anything that it says, and it will not fail to do anything that it says it will do. This morning we sang the song, Standing on the Promises of God. And we can sing that song because we can rest firm that God will do what he said he will do. It will not fail. If Jesus says, I'm coming again, guess what? That's money in the bank. If you want to take out a, a bed in Vegas on it, that it's going to happen. Of course, that's the long, that's the long odds, right? Because who knows when it's going to happen. Um, you can bet on it. It's with that certainty. It will not fail to do what it says it will do. And more than that, it will not err in any way. Nothing that it says will be in error. It comes from the mouth of God, so it's all true. The church may err in its interpretation of Scripture. People may personally err in their interpretation of Scripture. But the word of God does not err. The doctrine of Scripture's inerrancy and infallibility is a necessary consequence of its inspiration. If it is inspired by God, it must not fail and it must not err. Okay. But you might say at this point, Daniel, there are many people who come to me and they'll make many claims against Scripture. It contradicts itself. It's outdated. Any number of different things they might say, but the problem is not in the Bible. Ultimately, we are the problem. Our limited understanding, our limited abilities of those who interpret. The problem is not in scripture itself. Augustine said this, I believe most firmly that none of those authors of the Bible has erred in writing anything at all. Uh, we in the modern world balk against this sort of supernaturalism. Join that, that suspicion of the supernatural with our hatred of authority. And we just scoff at the idea of an inerrant Bible. But we in the church unashamedly must stand firm in the reality that the Bible is true, that it's free from error, that it will not fail in anything that it says it will do. And if it does not err, and if it does not fail, and if it is inspired, then guess what? We cannot pick and choose the things we like and the things we don't like. If it will not fail in one thing that it says, if it does not err, 
then the whole of the word of God has value for us. We read from Proverbs this morning. Was anyone sitting here this morning going, maybe thinking, why are we reading this passage from Proverbs? And you go, and it, and it's kind of racy in some ways, right? And yet, why do we read passages like that from the Bible? Because it is the inerrant, infallible word of God that still has application for us today. And so even those parts of, of, of Proverbs, and you know, we, we've been reading through the book of Proverbs as our responsive reading in the Old Testament, or our, our scripture reading in the Old Testament, and we're just going right through it. And so we don't skip over a, a, a chapter like that because it maybe sits uncomfortable with us. We continue to read through it because it has value and profit for, for us. We must look at them and seek to understand them. So the Bible is inspired, it's inerrant, and it's an infallible. Uh, next, it's authoritative. It has authority because it is inspired, because it's free from error. It's authoritative in all that it says. And at no point can we deny the authority of Scripture. Now, what does the word authority mean? It simply means that it has the ability and the right to speak to us as an authority figure. So, I mean, put this in the most simplistic terms. Uh, when the cop pulls you over and says you were speeding, he has the authoritative right to write you a ticket. Whether you like it or not, it doesn't matter. He has been given the authority by this city and state, country, whatever, to write you a ticket because you broke the law. As an adult, if you have children, whether your children like it or not, I'm sorry, children, just deal with it. They have the authority to tell you what you can and can't do. And your response is to obey them because they have authority over you. Yeah, you can laugh at her. <laughs> but you still have to do what she says. This is something that it's hard for us as children. I know as, as a child it was hard for me. I thought I knew what was best and so I wanted to tell my parents what was best for me. I don't have that right. My children don't have the right to tell me what's best for them. It's one of the hardest things we learn, I think, growing up. And we're in the middle of this lesson at our house. It doesn't matter if you think it's fair or not fair. You're going to do it because I say that you're going to do it. And that's a hard lesson. And there are times where we will make them do something that I know they don't want to do because I want them to learn. I have to do this because I've been told to do this. And we even go as far as to say... Do you realize that if you later have a job in life and your boss says, I need you to do this task and you don't want to do it and you say, I'm not going to do that, you get fired. Because it's our job as parents to teach and train our kids to work, to, to labor. The Bible does the same for us. Jesus in Matthew 5, verses 18 and 19 says this, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth passes away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all of it is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them teach and teaches them will be called the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Uh, this iota or dot is literally a marking on the, on the language. It's the smallest of the markings. And basically what Jesus is saying here is that every last bit of it, you must follow every last bit of it. There's not any of it that you can set aside for any reason. 
The word of God will remain till it has accomplished all that it was says it will accomplish. Now, just in case you're wondering when that is, uh, if Jesus has come back, then it's finished everything that it said it was going to do. Now, anything short of Jesus coming back, you still have to obey it. And that's that. There's no wiggle room there. Even the smallest letter is to be kept, kept in talk. The scriptures are absolutely authoritative for the people of God. Not only do we find wisdom in scripture, but we acknowledge we have to submit to that wisdom. It gets to instruct us. It gets to tell us how we are to live. It gets to tell us what we will choose, well, what we will do and not do. Now, when I say this, I don't mean that scripture gives you the answers to all your questions. You can't go to scripture and say, okay, scripture, because I know this is how you talk to your Bibles. Okay, scripture, I'm, I'm presented with two different jobs, and they both look like good jobs. Tell me which one to choose. Now, in some instances, scripture may help you there. If you know that one of the job offers is run by someone who's corrupt and is cheating the government and stuff like that, Bible, the Bible informs you, hey, don't take that job. That's not what you need to do. But if these two are equal in all other respects, the Bible's not going to tell you, choose this one and not this one. We pray about it. We think we weigh all the options. But it does instruct us in the way we are to live. It does get to say to us, don't steal. And don't be involved with anything that looks like stealing. Don't cheat. Don't lie. And we are, our response is that authoritatively we must acknowledge and submit to it. This goes even further. Jesus says that there are two great commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Without question, you must be doing those things. At the end of the uh, uh, book of Matthew, in the beginning of the book of Acts, he says, go, go into all the world, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and the name of the Son, and in the name of the Holy Spirit. You cannot reject that. You must be doing it. You are to be caring for the poor and the needy, the widow, the orphan. It tells us that we should be doing these things. You should be living for righteousness and putting off the things of this world. It has authority to tell us how we are to live. So it's infallible, it's inerrant, it's inspired, it's authoritative, and finally it's sufficient. It's sufficient in every way. All the training that we need in the ways of doctrine, of morality, of righteousness is found in scripture. The Bible is complete. It is unique. It is sufficient. And every deviation from Christianity begins with either taking something away from scripture or adding something to it. This was certainly true in the time of the apostles. It's still true today. We don't have to look far to see those who begin to add. The Christian scientist adds the works of Mary Baker Eddy. The Mormons add the Book of Mormon. Jehovah's Witnesses add Watchtower. The Seventh-day Adventists add the revelations of Ellen White. We cannot add to scriptures. The scriptures are sufficient in and of themselves. And unless a practice, unless a teaching comes from the Holy Scriptures, it has no place 
in the church. Scriptures alone determine our faith and practice. And this is actually a big problem today. In 1977, J.I. Packard was teaching in his uh, seminary classes and he said this, the battleground in the coming decades would not be over inerrancy, but over sufficiency of scripture. And more and more today, we are saying that scripture is not sufficient. We are declaring through the way we treat it that it is deficient. So that things that were, didn't used to be up in the air now become more and more up in the air. Sexual ethics, women's ordination, women's roles in, in the church and, and other things. We're consor- concerned, as we've said, more with the advice of businesses and marketing schemes and entertainment. What does this world tell us that we are to be as a church? And what are we going to be in order that the world will not mock us and scoff at us and call us bigots? And those who are not tolerant. And we value these things over the Bible itself. And against this age of skepticism, we must be reminded that the scripture is sufficient to meet all challenges of modern life. The scriptures are sufficient to reveal to us the way of salvation through the working of the Holy Spirit, through his illuminating it to our hearts and minds. The scriptures are sufficient to reveal the whole truth of God, uh, both as what would be his will for us in salvation, but also uh, in, in the world around us. God is revealing something of himself to us. The heavens declare the glory of God. The will of God is discerned. He designs and reveals to us. I think, you know, we contend, I think at this point, to, uh, in, particularly in the world we live in, look at scientists and go, well, look how terrible they are. And there's certainly uh, some avenues of science, not avenues, that's not the right word, but there are some of those scientists who would ask of us to look at science with the same faith that we hold to the Bible and say, evolution is a true thing. Believe it and have faith in it. But the reality is this, that as the history of science grew, the early scientists, many of those people that we look at or look back to today had some of these great things, uh, were looking for God in their studies because science is a reflection of its creator. It's an occasion for wonder and awe as we see who made heaven and earth. But even still, we need scripture to know what is needed for salvation The word of God is sufficient to reveal for us God's plan for us. But it doesn't do it in some sort of mystic or mythical way that we just go, we lay our hands on it and go, oh, give me the words. No, it comes through reason and study. He has equipped us with the facilities that we need to see what is in there for us. The word of God is sufficient to reveal truth to us. must be done through extensive thought and study. <coughs> John Knox, uh, the Scottish reformer, said this. <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> you shall believe God who speaks plainly in his word. 
The word of God is plain in itself. If there is any obscurity anywhere, the Holy Scripture, who is never contrary to himself, explains it more clearly in other places. No one can remain in doubt save those who remain obstinately ignorant. This doesn't mean that we don't come to parts of Scripture that are hard, and there are hard parts of Scripture. But the greatest part of Scripture, the main measure is simple and clear. Do you want to know what it, God requires of you, that you to be saved? Do you want to know what is required of you after you are saved? Scriptures are clear in their teaching of this. We can find biblical wisdom in the word of God. And it is the only thing that is able to give us this wisdom, to lead us to salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. I believe the wise Christian is at all times asking himself or herself two questions. What does the Bible say of it? And what does the Bible require of me in light of this? This is how we should be approaching life and faith. What does the Bible teach me? Now to answer that question, what must you do? How can you know what the Bible teaches you about any situation? Study. Hide the word of God in your heart so when times come where you need it, it is there. God gives us wisdom to evaluate our choices, to choose the ones that lead us down the path that glorifies him. And this, I believe, is the greatest tragedy, one of the greatest tragedies going on in the church today. That many professing Christians are making foolish choices and they're doing it in the name of the word of God. Because they are just ignorant to what it says. And they are, in fact, just doing that which they would do that helps themselves. We need true biblical wisdom in all of life. The popular rock group from the 60s, the Beatles, had a song, and it was called All You Need Is Love. My son loves that song. It's on a little cartoon he watches. It's really not true. It is true in one sense that we just need the love of Jesus, but I think that we can say something like this. What you need is the Bible. Because in the Bible, you have the revealed word of God for you. You want to know about how you are to love? Go to the Bible. You want to know about how you are reconciled to the God of the universe? Go to the Bible. Do you want to know how you are to live righteously and morally? Go to the Bible. And if this is the case, then we have to quit adding to it. And we have to quit subtracting from it. We cannot remove things from scripture simply because they are inconvenient to us. We can't. We cannot remove, we cannot add. And and that's true today. And I would even say this. There are many great commentaries out there. In the course of a week, I am reading through many great commentaries. But the problem is this. If I ever... Stop questioning commentaries. If you ever stop questioning me, something's wrong. 
Because while I come up here and I seek to faithfully and diligently preach to you about the word of God, I am not myself the word of God. I am not inerrant. I am not infallible. I am not the inspired word of God. And while I pray diligently, and I hope that you are praying for me diligently, that I would rightly divine the word of God and preach it to you so that you may know truth, I am not without error. So you should be questioning even me when you read through these Christian books. And I'm not downing all Christian books. There are good, valuable things out there for us. But you should constantly be questioning and saying, what does this say? What does Daniel say? And what does the Bible say? Because it ultimately, you know, we go through and we do many things. We've been reading through the larger catechism as a responsive reading. Today we read through the Nicene Creed and they're good, good things. But guess what? They're not the word of God. They're simply not the word of God. They are man's effort to seek to put into words what the Bible says, but they're still not the word of God. We have to let scripture always have the last word. Always. We must not add to it. We must not subtract to it. And we must be very wary of those who do. The Bible is sufficient for all that we need. And I tell you, this is a hard one. Because we kind of kick at this one a little, even if we don't realize it. As we try to live in this world, as we try to somehow navigate and feel like we're not the outsider. Scripture alone. It's all that we need. And it's all that we need because it is the inspired, infallible, inerrant word of God that is authoritative in all ways and sufficient for all that we need. If you ever wonder, or if you've ever asked the question, what is the Reformation all about? Why, would, why, why did we need this thing called the Reformation? This is one of the main reasons. This is what they were fighting for. Luther said to the church of his day, you are teaching contrary to the word of God. And I'm going to fight you on it. Because at the end of the day, my conscience is bound by the word of God and my faith in Jesus Christ. It is not bound by you. And it's a fight we still continue to have today. Are we fighting for scripture the way they fought for scripture, the way uh, the early church fought for scripture? The way Paul defended the faith which he had Are we with the same vigor and passion? Mark earlier this week sent me this video. Talked about how the South tends to act on Saturday. And how the South tends to act on Sunday. And I thought it was very good in this 
analogy for this is you talk about on Saturday we make our way to football games and we get dressed up and we're excited. We literally scream ourselves hoarse. Even if we're not at the, the stadiums, we're at home watching games and we got to get to the game and we make sure that we're on time for the game and we don't want to miss any part of the game. And then on Sunday, maybe we get up a little slow and we don't get quite to church on time and we get home or we, maybe we're leaving church and we're talking about the game from Saturday. Where is our passion? And it's not just football. There's anything. Where's our passion? Where's our vigor? Where are we applying ourselves? Because you have to understand something. The reformers were willing to die for their view of scripture. When you get a little bit later and you get into the, uh, the Puritans and the reign of Bloody Mary in, in England and Scotland, they were willing and ready to die to defend scripture. Are you ready to die to defend the word of God, to not compromise the word of God in any way? I think sometimes we, in our faith, get so concerned with the things of this world that we are not concerning ourselves with the things of God. And that's why I think this is a good study for us. What has the church in its history been willing to die for? We're about to come to this table. We're about to come and see Christ, death and resurrection on display. It is in this table that we see the hope that we have, the salvation that we have in Christ Jesus. Are we willing to die in defense of our God? Are you willing to suffer ridicule and scorn in defense of your God? Are you willing to die to self in order to obey what God has called you to do? To be representatives of his gospel, to speak truth no matter what. If you're anything like me, that challenge is a gut check. What does our faith look like? What are we willing to give up for the sake of Christ? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the word of God. We thank you for the foundation of faith that we have in it, the wisdom and truth in it. We thank you that it is indeed the inspired, inerrant, infallible, authoritative, sufficient word of God. Would you convict our hearts to treat it as such? Would you enable us to give up the love of this world and its pleasures? To obey you in all things, we ask in Jesus' holy name. Amen.